Heavenly Father, we thank you for binding us together in the unifying cord of Christ's blood this morning. For those that confess Jesus as their Lord and Savior, the sufficient sacrifice to wipe away, wash away, and cleanse and satisfy the judgment for their sin, we have every cause, every reason to be here this morning with our hearts ablaze with thanksgiving and glory to the only one who is worthy of our praise. And so we say, hallowed be your name, O Heavenly Father, for the miraculous, sovereign plan of salvation. We say, you are King of kings and Lord of lords, dear Jesus Christ, because you and only you could have and did come into history as God and man and satisfied the payment that we deserved. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are active and you indwell your people and you communicate to our hearts the truth that would otherwise be too high for us and we would not know it in the deadness of our sin. Because we are alive in Christ, we rejoice in growth and our spiritual walk and fruit and also a deeper knowledge of the revelation of your nature and your character and your worth and your works and attributes revealed, O oh God, in this great book that we study this morning. I pray that you would open our eyes and ears by the power of the Spirit today so that we might be greater equipped to worship and to testify to the way, the truth, and the life. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. What a great privilege to open the scriptures together this morning. I encourage you to do that with me by turning to Psalm 52 today. Psalm 52, these nine verses will be our text this morning. In a moment, if you're able, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of the word. Psalm 52 is in our psalm series, second Sunday of the month. We touch on one of the psalms, and we've been doing this for some time, and that brings us to this curious installment, which has quite a background to it. This morning we'll spend quite a bit of time in other scripture as well, uh, some time in 1 Samuel, 1 Chronicles, 2 Samuel, to give us a flavor for the context in which uh, David pens these words. So stand with me if you would, and let us read, beginning with the title, these verses together. Follow me as I read Psalm 52. The word says, to the choir master, a maskil of David, when Doeg, the Edomite, came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Amalek. Verse 1, why do you boast, O evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction. Like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking. What is right? More than speaking, what is right? Say law. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. Say law. Verse 6. The righteous shall see in fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. 
Verse 8, but I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. This is the word of God. You may be seated. As I introduce this message for us this morning, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 21, and in a moment, we're going to give a brief overview for the context that is reflected in the title of Psalm 52 that occurred in the life of David and inspired this psalm. The life of David parallels these nine verses, not just the moments that we will read directly associated with the events involving Doeg and company, but the life of David parallels these nine verses continuing beyond this immediate moment. Every chapter, in fact, of David's life and calling, both in his exile and as he existed as a fugitive, running from Saul, the wicked king, waiting for the promise to be fulfilled of his own anointing and assuming the throne as God's chosen king to succeed him. And then as his life unveiled and as he wrote uh, the scriptures as he did and sang his songs, all of these seem to fit and are well encapsulated here actually in just nine short verses in Psalm 52. The life of David brings glory to God in manifold ways. We see the glory of God in the life of David in contrast, in stark contrast to the vainglorious. The term vainglorious just refers to those who glory in themselves. David manifest and reflected God's glory because he was a mirror, as it were, insofar as God chose, chose him and anointed him and used him to declare, to proclaim, to model, and to example his truth to the kingdom. But there were others, namely the enemies of David, ultimately the enemies of God who were vainglorious, who cared little to nothing. In fact, it was the last thing on their mind to glorify the Lord. And instead, their chief aim and desire was to glorify themselves in their own self-centered vanity. This is, in fact, the state of all men before they are redeemed. It is the state of our original sin. But that contrast between David as God's called, set apart, chosen, and consecrated one to the vainglorious is thematic in this psalm. It's not that the wicked personified by Doeg, this evil character, can successfully steal. It's not that they are successful in stealing the praise and power that is ascribed to God alone. It is rather that the enemies of God, as against His people, when that clash occurs, serve to display God's judgments, and especially, as we see in Scripture, at the final reckoning. But even in sample or representative measure, we see when God judges the wicked in this life, He indeed glorifies Himself in so doing. Charles Spurgeon says, in a way that only he can, Beelzebub and Mammon together. So two references, one is to Satan, Beelzebub, the other Mammon, the root of, or the love of money being the root of all evil is encapsulated in that statement there, a word meaning mammon or the love of money that can distract or be an idolatrous pursuit of man. Beelzebub and mammon together heat the furnace seven times hotter for the children of God. But in the end, that shall work out for their own destruction. 
Recall what Spurgeon is referring to. Daniel's friends were condemned to the fiery furnace. And the anger of the God-hating king had the fire heated seven times. And before they were, or, and, and they actually they were thrown in, but they were miraculously preserved. The king had a change of heart. And instead of uh, serving as agent of the wicked one of Satan to oppress and to afflict the people of God, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that seven times hotter furnace then served to kill the guards and to bring judgment upon them even before they reached its flames. And so that's the picture that Spurgeon draws upon to illustrate one reason why God suffers sometimes with the wicked. David's life serves to illustrate this point, as does Psalm 52. But the life of David goes further to illustrate and to confirm even the Beatitudes as we see them in the book of Matthew. Chapter 5, verse 5, in fact, comes to mind. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Here's a shepherd boy. That was a low job. It was not a high esteemed, important position of social prominence. To be a shepherd was to be a commoner. And to be a boy was even less important still. Yet this shepherd boy, this commoner who spent most of his life herding sheep, at least in the beginning, and running from the powers that be, hated by those who are in the upper echelons of authority, this meek individual, in fact, inherited the kingdom as a picture of the way God works through unlikely vessels to display His glory. The covenant-keeping love of God, we will learn more about this in Psalm 52, is the only assurance for salvation and hope. Not power, not acclaim, not position, not riches, not influence. No, the only basis for assurance, salvation, security, hope in this life is the chesed. That is in Hebrew, the covenant-keeping love of God, usually translated in our Bibles, steadfast love. Any other quote-unquote soothing song is a delusion posing as a lullaby. But if you want a true lullaby, a song to set the soul at ease, no matter the conflict around, Psalm 52 could well serve because of its foundation and its themes. So this morning, let me give you a heading in three brief points. First of all, appreciating the potency of Psalm 52, and perhaps we can appreciate it in three ways this morning. How can we appreciate the power of Psalm 52? First of all, we'll consider it from a biographical that is the narrative or the story of David vantage point, a biographical vantage point. Secondly, this morning, we'll consider it from a poetic vantage point, the things that are impressed upon us through the way the psalm is written, particularly David, David's use of analogies or metaphors in this passage. And thirdly, from a theological vantage point, truth about God or spiritual truths that Psalm 52 underscores and highlights for us. First of all, if you're with me in 1 Samuel 21, let's open up with a little bit of scriptural background considering the biographical vantage point of this psalm. Before we read that section, let me remind you of the title of Psalm 52. Again, to the choir master, a masculine, which means a song of wisdom or a song meant to teach, of David, when Doag, a particular individual, an Edomite, so his ethnicity is referenced here, came, to Saul, came and told Saul... David has come to the house of Ahimelech. So that is a curious note, is it not, to introduce. So that should trigger our mind and our study to go back to the history of this exchange, David versus Doag, which is the title of today's message. 
And here we see that story unfolding, 1 Samuel 21. We'll begin with verses 1 through 3. It says, Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know any, <coughs> excuse me, anything of the matter by which I send you, and with which I have charged you, and I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. So David, truth be told here, is running from Saul. He needs emergency provisions. And so he's asking the priest in charge of the table of showbread there, the loaves on hand uh, in the worship, the bread of the presence as it's referred to in verse 6, to supply him emergency food in his time of need. It's a clandestine uh, approach here or mission operation that, that David or that is on here. He's trying to escape from the armies of Saul and any who might tell his position. So the story unfolds. Read verse 7. It says, Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doag, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. So the plot is about to take a twist. There's a brief uh, interjection here of a detail that becomes important as the story unfolds. David's attempt to escape under the cloak uh, of anonymity uh, outside of Saul's watchful eyes is going to prove hindered by the presence of Doag. We continue reading in the next chapter, chapter 22, Verses 8 through 23, it says in the second half of verse 8, None of you is sorry. Well, back up to 6. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul, again Saul being king at this time, said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds uh, that all of you have conspired against me? So you see the tone in his voice. He's exasperated, frustrated, and he says, why are people deserting me or why do they show any sympathies for this refugee that I have put a bounty on his head? You know, uh, who's the one that, after all, who's really in charge here? Saul is trying to assert his authority and to rally everybody against David. Verse 8 again says, no one discloses to me when my, <coughs> excuse me, when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. So Saul's son, uh, Jonathan, had made an agreement, a promise with David, and it, uh, no one told Saul, and he's irate at this. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me, he says in verse 8, to lie in wait as at this day. Now, verse 9, notice our character here, Doeg. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, Doamelech, the son of Ahidab. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitab, <coughs> and all his father's house. The priests who were at Nob and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, here now, son of Ahidab. And he answered him, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, 
Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword? So he had given him the sword of Goliath. And inquired of God for him, so that he may, has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day. And Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant does know nothing of all this, much or little. Verse 16, And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and your father's house. And the, Verse 17, And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled, that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Verse 18, our character Doeg again. Then the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on the day, on that day, 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons escaped. He goes and tells David, last verse in this passage, verse 23, stay with me, David tells those who are gathered with him. Do not be afraid, even though this knowledge has come to his ears. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me, you shall be in safe keeping. What I've just given to you is taken a little bit of time to unfold is the immediate occasion for Psalm 52. I think it's important to take in those details because now when we read Psalm 52 with that exchange in mind, notice how much more weight these words have. David has just heard that one man, uh, uh, this Doeg character, has slain 85 priests and their families, destroyed a whole city, and he has done it just to kiss up to Saul as a sycophantic uh, uh, activity, just to gain power, just to be among those who Saul has favor with. He is willing to absolutely go against the word and law of God and commit this great evil. And imagine how all of David, David's mighty men, no matter how mighty they might have been, and the refugees that traveled with him might have been discouraged, fearful, and just utterly aghast at this horrible experience. Well, it's in this context that Psalm 52 brings forth this proclamation. Verse 1, Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit, speaking directly to Doag and all he represents. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. Verse 5, but God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. Selah. 
David has a transcendent perspective on the circumstances that are happening around him. He is able to see above the immediate horrific carnage of this act. And in the autobiographical information, the record of David's life and how he writes of his own life in this psalm, we see that this psalm on this occasion is evidence of inspiration and stunningly so. Who but the Holy Spirit could have given David confidence under these circumstances? When he has just heard by the testimony of one man who escaped that an entire city has been destroyed just because they gave him some bread, how can he rise up with confidence and say, there is a judge over all the universe and you will answer for your actions? He can do so because the Holy Spirit has given him a grasp of reality that is greater than anything mere humans could comprehend. He knows that God is God. In spite of the atrocities and wickedness that happen in this life, there is a judgment. No one will escape it. Not, a, not Doeg, not Saul, not all the armies that chase him. No sinner, in fact, unless their sins have been atoned for. This is the immediate occasion that is fresh in David's mind as he writes this song. I imagine him singing it for those that gathered with him, hiding from the spies and the agents representing Saul who were fortified with all this armor to utterly destroy him. And what did they sing of? They sang of God's power to judge. They sang of God's steadfast love as the refuge. They sang of their duty to honor and praise the Lord even while they are hiding from an imperial force and running for their lives. This would have been fresh on his mind. And perhaps when we realize this, we can also realize that Psalm 52 has great value for us and others, particularly in the deepest of our trials. Imagine Psalm 52 recognizing its context on the lips and in the heart of the persecuted church right now. If we imagine the conditions of our world today, yes, there are governments, there are enemies of Christ that are empowered to destroy, at least physically speaking, some of the lives of His people, and indeed by the hundreds and thousands in some cases, this globe over. Well, on the lips and hearts of every one of the persecuted brothers and sisters, our persecuted brothers and sisters, they can have, if they open up their scriptures, a psalm to give them refuge, comfort, and confidence, because David experienced Escape by a hair's breadth from the slaughter of wicked men. And even those who passed away, their uh, death would be uh, avenged when God's judgment at its perfect time would be levied against the haters of the king of the universe, not to mention King David, his anointed one. So again, from this biographical vantage point, we can appreciate the potency or power of Psalm 52. Next, Point I'd like to bring you to this one's a little shorter reference, but perhaps equally powerful in First Chronicles chapter ten. First Chronicles chapter ten. While you're turning there, as David writes this psalm, notice he is not just responding to the immediate circumstances. What has just transpired <coughs> with uh, Doeg and the slaughtered priests, but he is also writing prophetically of things that will happen in the future. 
He says, again, verse 5, God will break you down, speaking personally and directed towards the enemies of God's will. God will break them down forever. He will snatch and tear them from their tents. It says in verse 6, the righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, see the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. Now, let's go to 1 Chronicles 10 and see if this prophecy did not come to pass with respect to Saul, David's chief enemy, at the time when this psalm was written. 1 Chronicles 10.1 says, Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Melchishua, and the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was wounded by the archers. Verse 4. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he fell upon his sword and died, and thus Saul died. He and his three sons and all his house died together. And when all the men of Israel who were in the valley saw that the army had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. goes on to say how the Philistines came in, swept in, inhabited the place, occupied the place, took Saul's own head and a bunch of things as war trophies. It says in the narrative commentary here in verse 13, So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Psalm 52 came to pass. Saul was put to death by the Lord, our text says in 1 Chronicles 10. The Word says in other places that those who live by the sword die by the sword. And it is something of an irony, and even Psalm 52 and other psalms recognize it in Psalm 2, that the very tools of self-aggrandizement, the very instruments of the vainglorious, the very things that we brandish in our sin to make us bigger and better and usurp God's authority and declare ourselves Lord over Him in our foolishness, they become the implements of our own destruction. Proverbs 26, 27 says, Whoever digs a pit will fall back into it, and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. You remember the gallows that Haman built for Mordecai, in the story of Esther, who finally hung on that implement of capital punishment. Well, in God's perfect timing, providence, and justice, Haman himself was killed by the very thing that was going to be an instrument and a cause of death for others. When we ask this question, what finally killed Saul? The humanistic answer might be, well, the Philistines, oh, the war, the unrest, you know, the those about him. Oh, he was underprepared. He didn't get supplies fast enough. He didn't, wasn't joined in the, the ranks by reinforcements at the right time. Is that what the Bible says is the cause of Saul's death? No. The cause of Saul's death 
is listed for us again in, second, in First Chronicles 10.13. So Saul died for his breach of faith. The reason, and it says, therefore the Lord put him to death. So the chief cause of his death, that is ultimately speaking, was the Lord himself. And why did he do it? For his breach of faith. Saul did not keep the command of the Lord. And he consulted a medium. He resorted to witchcraft, idolatry, and seeking for advice and guidance, illumination among the demonic and not among God and His ways and means. And because he did not seek guidance from the Lord, therefore he was judged. And he became a fulfillment, he and all his house, that very day of Psalm 52, prophetically penned by David, who was once his enemy number one, who had everybody against him. Yet in the end, Saul's demise proved the potency of Psalm 52. Not only was this a commentary on the immediate circumstances, it was a prophecy of what soon would come. Thirdly, biographical vantage point, David's future. There's also prophecy in this psalm looking even farther forward. But I am like a green olive tree, David says in verse 8, in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God. How long? For this life, till it carries me through, good ripe old age? No, forever and ever. He says, verse 9, I will thank you forever because you have done it. He has set again an indicator of time and expectation in verse 1. The steadfast love of God endures all the day. The endurance of the Lord, His will and His ways is listed in this psalm as having no shelf life. Forever and ever and ever, David expects God to work and that his salvation will not be just escape from Saul, but indeed escape from sin and, the, and death itself. Second Samuel 7 verses 7 through 14 confirms these words, again prophetically revealing the potency of Psalm 52. 2 Samuel 7, this is one of the more important chapters in covenant history. Here we have from the mouth of the prophet Nathan the covenant proclaimed that God makes with his servant. We'll begin in verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, this is the instruction from the Lord to Nathan to tell David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them. Notice that language, I will plant them. Does that not sound similar? I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. Again, I will appoint a place for my people Israel. I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies, moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you will lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, you shall come, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. 
He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the Son of Men. Notice this phrase, same Hebrew word, has said. Verse 15, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established in accordance with all these words and accordance with all this vision Nathan spoke to David. Psalm 52, its power comes alive in these words of covenant proclamation directly from the Lord over his servant. When David had written, I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. When he said, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the chesed love of God forever and ever. The steadfast love that is the covenant keeping loyalty of God forever. How much stronger is Psalm 52 in light of what God did through David and his lineage. David would have a son who would have a son who would have a son, etc., until we get our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Herein is the steadfast love of God through the lineage of David for all who are in Christ forever. The power of Psalm 52 is real, not just for David as a promise, but for all who are in the Son of David, Jesus Christ. Second major point this morning, appreciating the power or potency of Psalm 52 from a poetic vantage point. Briefly under this heading or this second point, a poetic vantage point, I think it's sometimes helpful to note the devices, the literary devices that are employed to give us a deeper meaning or, or a, to communicate with more force what the author intends to convey. And the first one is this idea of a sharp implement like a razor or a razor blade. When David describes the wicked and their activities, such as Doag was responsible for when he slaughtered that whole city, he describes it as follows in verse 2, Psalm 52. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. The favorite tool or toy, if you will, in the hand of the wicked is to use everything to their own advantage. Uh, we see here in this razor blade analogy in someone who is not qualified to wield it correctly a picture of the dangerous implications of taking into your own hands and in your own power something that is absolutely destructive, not only to others but potentially to yourself. A Psalm 15 describes a man of integrity earlier in the Psalter as one who swears to his own hurt without, and does not change. What is the definition? What is the opposite of a doag? What does it mean to be a man after God's own heart? Well, the man after God's own heart swears to his own hurt and does not change. Now, on the other side, what does a man look like who has no integrity and is caught in the death of his trespasses and sins. He is a man, for his own sake, is willing to hurt others. He will break his vow, kill others, 
to advance himself. And this is a complete turning on the head of the righteous demands of the law of God. The Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill, not lie, thou shalt not lie, bear false witness, steal, commit adultery, and so on, are all based on a transcendent ethic, the truth of God's integrity that will not be compromised without judgment. The wicked man takes every opportunity to advance himself, and he does so using God's law, abusing God's law to his advantage. And that's the picture here. So the disciples of Doag, if you will, they disregard the law of God whenever it is to their advantage to do so. And we see here that destruction, deceit, evil, lying, and devouring are the words that are used to describe their evil activity. And remember this man, what was he trying to do? Well, he was trying to curry favor with the powers that be. He was trying to go along to get along, really. He was tattletailing on David because he wanted to be in the good graces. He wanted to be the king's pet, if you will, to use uh, uh, something of an analogy to describe him. He was the perfect picture of a sycophant. What is a sycophant? It's one who deviously uses leverage to advance himself by currying favor or power with others. It's somebody who wants to uh, take every underhanded way that's available to him to better his own position. And this is the picture of evil from, that's portrayed by this uh, poetic vantage point. And it's described as like a razor blade. Uh, his tongue, that is. He will say things. He will distort the truth. He will position himself. He will lie outright. He will deceive and work evil. And every time he does so, he uses his tongue. He makes decisions and presents himself in such a way as to wreak destruction. And his tongue is described here as like a sharp razor. Perhaps another way of seeing this analogy a little bit even more starkly Imagine an implement that is all blade and no handle. This like a sword that has edges but no hilt. If you were to grab this sword and swing it, what would be the end result? Well, you can do a lot of damage for a short period of time, but in the end, what will happen? The harder you grasp that blade, the more forcefully you use it, the deeper that blade cuts into your own palm. And eventually, your own strength will give out along with your life, as you bleed into the ground, attempting to advance yourself with this implement. That's what it is like when we seek for salvation, assurance, favor, and security outside of God's word and outside of God's way. It's to grab a blade with no handle and to swing it wildly, trying to protect ourselves from whatever we see standing in our way. The adversaries... His adversaries might have fallen in the short term, but his grip and life are increasingly compromised as he wields this weapon. Uh, this is a man who operates pragmatically. He figures that the ends justify the means, but the ends that he pursues and the means that he pursues indeed will eventually be his own end. And that's the picture of the wicked tongue as a razor blade that David unfolds in this passage. Secondly, there's a picture he employs involving trees, plantings, and specifically as to the righteous, olive trees. Notice verses 5 and then contrasted with verse 8. Verse 5 and 8. 
but God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He'll uproot you from the land of the living. There's a contrast in verse 8. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. In this picture, as these two uh, images or metaphors of planting are employed, there's a picture in my mind that I was using to try to incorporate those four Hebrew words that are translated break, snatch, tear, and uproot. That is, when David speaks about the judgment that will befall the wicked one, he talks about them being removed utterly from the land in an aggressive and a violent way. When God seeks to, uh, when he seeks to pursue justice according to the infraction against his holy law and with all the power at his disposal, this is what it's like. Have you ever gone into the woods and seen a little sapling or a piece of brush? You know, let's say about the size of your thumb or one of your fingers. You go up to that piece of brush and first thing you do is you break it over your knee. So that's that break word. Now imagine a little sapling at a right angle, a piece of brush at a right angle. Now you have a perfect handle. You grasp at that point and you jerk, pushing against the ground with your feet. And what happens? Applying enough force, you break that stick and you uproot it entirely from the soil. Something you could do when you're clearing a garden plot with limited tools, for instance. This is basically the analogy that's employed here. God will break you down forever, snatch, tear you, and uproot you from the land. Now, this analogy is helpful because when we see the strength of the enemies of God Himself, at first it might set us back. We might be fearful or concerned. But notice in that picture, if the fibers of that sapling are strong, it just makes a better handle for it to be torn out. And in the same way, Though the enemies of God are suffered for a season and may seem formidable for a time, God will turn their evil against them and they will serve His purposes and display His justice when they are ultimately judged. And if they do not repent, they will be broken, snatched, torn, uprooted, and removed from the land of the living. Scripture expands on this analogy into the New Testament. It speaks of a planting field, a field of plantings, eventually in the future, where every tear is removed from the wheat, bundled into, fire, uh, into piles to be burned with fire. And what is remaining is that which is planted, that is fruitful by God's own hand in fertile soil, producing uh, praise to His glorious name. This is the second imagery involving plantings, or more like the second imagery, what the New Testament refers to in that example is wheat. David describes in this example in Psalm 52 as a green olive tree. He says in verse 8, But, and there's the contrast, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I asked Isaac to show you a picture of an olive tree that I found on the internet to give you an idea of the image that is in David's mind. So this is no slight tree. Imagine the picture I told you before of a little sprig the size of your thumb being snapped in half and rooted out. And now look at this tree here. This is an olive tree, and olive trees can last for centuries, I'm told. 
They don't produce the most beautiful foliage by some measures, but they are fruitful. And their olives and the uh, olive oil and stuff that is, that is gleaned from them is extremely valuable. They have a low profile and a deep root system. Their trunk is almost like there were multiple trunks braided together. They may at first seem unsightly, but imagine what gale force wind would be needed to knock that tree over. I can't imagine a hurricane strong enough to uproot that tree. When David says, I am like a green olive tree in the house of the Lord, I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. We can see here what he has in mind. He has in mind that the wicked are very, they are planted on very tenuous soil and will be easily uprooted. But the righteous who cling to God's steadfast love, if you cling, if you tie yourself, bet your future on God's faithfulness to his covenant, that's what you look like. And I don't care what the enemy says to you and lies to you about. That is our future in Christ. Surety, strength, resilience, and perseverance until the very end. This is the poetic vantage point that Psalm 52 gives us to help us realize when we take these ideas into view, we can start to see the contrast in summary under this point. And that's primarily what the poetic devices serve to illustrate. While the wicked plot destruction, David is content to wait. Those who are anxious and stress out and worry only about themselves and their vainglory, they're always conniving, staying awake, at, awake late at night, planning their next move. <coughs> they love evil and, and lying. Their tongue plots destruction, and this basically is their lifestyle. In contrast to that, David says in the last verse, verse 9, I will wait for your name. David is confident in the worth and works, the attributes recorded of God, even as he has had the testimony of the Exodus and other records for him in Scripture, he is content to wait. The reputation of God has proven itself already to him through prior testimony in his life. He's slain Goliath, after all. He's seen God move heaven and earth on, because of his relationship, because of his covenant love and promises with his people. So when David says, I will wait for your name, he's saying, I will wait for that power that embodies all of God's revealed character to intervene in his perfect way and time to thwart the enemy and to be faithful to his promises. These are the contrasts in Psalm 52. Also, we've already covered at some detail the difference between a plant that can be uprooted and a green olive tree, meaning vivacious and fruitful and with ripe olives firmly planted, uh, the difference between those two. One will stand indefinitely, the other can be removed in a moment. And finally, of course, this contrast involves two characters, David and Doag. One, the anointed, repentant, submissive to God's law individual, and the other, the one who seeks to uh, break every law if it means he can have an opportunity to advance himself. Thirdly, final point this morning, let us consider a theological vantage point. We can appreciate the potency and the power of Psalm 52 from a theological vantage point. First of all, the truth, uh, truth as it is revealed in Psalm 52 demonstrates to us the absurdity of unbelief. Trusting in anything besides Christ is the height of foolishness. The next psalm, this will be the theme, 53.1. Notice, just skipping ahead. The fool says in his heart, 
There is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. Recall Psalm 2. It says God not only looks down from heaven, but He laughs in the heavens. He laughs in derision. He mocks those who pretend to usurp His authority, lordship, and throne. This is the same theme that David picks up on in Psalm 52, verse 6. It says, The righteous shall see and fear. That is, the righteous shall see eventually, ultimately, the judgment of the wicked. And when they do, they will see it and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own, he, and sought refuge in his own destruction. The absurdity of unbelief is an ironically laughable proposition. Part of the redeeming value of suffering usurpation attempts. Why does God suffer long with the wicked? It is a question that's important to the Psalms. It's fundamentally asked in the theme of Psalm 73, for instance. Why do the wicked endure for a season? Well, one answer is found in Psalm 52. Part of the redeeming value of suffering with the wicked is found in the worshipful observation of the righteous. When the righteous see wickedness and they see God's proportional response, they fear the Lord. They have an awe and respect that God's commandments cannot be broken with impunity. But when God's law is broken, it is answered with justice. And that is something to take seriously, soberly, and it should move us to fear. But also there's a laughter there's a complete dismissal out of hand of the foolishness of unbelief. This is not that we mock a particular individual, but Satan's ways and means and wiles are indeed laughable. And his scarecrows are not formidable at all. Don't be taken aback by the intellectual arguments of the atheist, the unbeliever, the agnostic, or whatever the brand of rebellion today, false religions, cults, whoever. Don't be taken a bag, set a bag by it, don't be intimidated by it at all. See and fear and laugh at every attempt to show that I am God, I have a better idea, or let's go over here, let's glorify ourselves, do this and that. Men exalt themselves only to be dashed to pieces if they do not repent. The irony of all of their endeavors is that they will be used against them as God's tools for judgment unless they bow before His name and before His Lordship. The absurdity of unbelief is on parade, even as David writes Psalm 52. Yes, it would seem that he was in extreme danger and he cried out in anguish many times, but at this moment of clarity, he is able to see above the conflict to the reality that this Doag fellow was an idiot. He was completely foolish and he was going to be judged and all with him. And we've already read a record of the house of Saul decimated from the earth by the hand of God because of his law-breaking and rebellion. Secondly, under a theological vantage point, reality and covenant. <clears throat> For David, his reality in Psalm 52 is not shaped by, primarily by his experience or by his circumstances. That would be empiricism, that, that which matters or that which we can take seriously is only that which we can perceive by our senses. For David, he lived his life not by sight, but by faith. 
The reality of relationship, covenant relationship with God governed his worldview. Verse 8, he says, But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the hesed, the steadfast love of God, forever and ever. Earlier he has said that the foolishness of the enemy's boasting and his violent activity is indeed foolish because the steadfast love of God endures all the day. David knows that unless you are bound in covenant with God, if you tie yourself to his, or if you are tied by his sovereign hand to his promises, that is the only hope of assurance, security, hope in the future. And he says later, I will thank you forever because you have done it. This is a covenant that God has promised and made and ultimately he will see through. And there, therein, and only therein, is ultimate hope. For David, the reality of the future and the assurance of his soul was shaped by covenant realities. He demonstrates in these texts, he shows in Psalm 52, how foolish it is to bet against the Lord's faithfulness to his promises. If you want to know what is utterly foolish, it is to bet against the Lord keeping his promises. That's what Doeg, Saul, and company were doing. Now, conversely, if you want to know where the place of assurance, security, salvation, and hope lies, put all your eggs in the basket of God's promises, and therein you will find safety. This is the message in part of Psalm 52. Think of this phrase. Finish this phrase for me in your mind, if you would. At the end of the day, I can rely on what? At the end of the day, when I lay my head on the pillow, I hope in, it's going to be okay because at least I can content myself remembering, and there's a blank after that. There are different ways that we come to peace or conclusion in our own minds when our heads are hitting the pillow perhaps late at night. At least I can rest in knowing, and finish the phrase, I can find joy remembering, finish the phrase, take comfort in the following, I can tell myself, and then there's a blank there, for David in Psalm 52, we learn that at the end of every phrase, such as the ones I just gave to you, is the relationship that God has with his favored covenant people. And for us, brothers and sisters in Christ, that is the salvation, eternal life, purchasing power of Christ's own blood for us. It is the judgment of our sins on the cross, and it is the promise of eternal life. It is reconciliation with God the Father through our one intercessor, high priest, mediator, and sacrifice, Jesus Christ. Therein is the essence of relational covenant with God's people, chesed, steadfast love. If you place your faith there and let that covenant shape the reality of how you respond to your situations, you will be learning the lesson and walking in the victory that Psalm 52 lays out for us. Finally, this morning, there is a multi-tense, if you will, application of these truths. There is a past reality, there's a present reality, and there's a future reality that David refers to. He says, I will thank you forever because you have done it. David recognizes that the will of God, because it's God, doing it is as good as done. 
And David recognizes that there is a completion, a finality, an assurance, a security, and a certainty in God's promises. Much like uh, the phrase that we hear in the Gospels when Christ says, it is finished. There is a completion, a fullness of the time, a marker in redemptive history where God's promises have come to pass at His perfect time and powerfully so. So David thanks the Lord that he can trust that because of what he's done in the past, he has assurance now. He also says, I will wait for your name. There's a future orientation too. I can wait in hope because the God who has delivered will deliver me in the future. And he says finally, for it is, for it is good in the presence of the godly. And there is a context of what he is doing presently then. He is worshiping the Lord. He's giving him thanks forever. He's stating his song of confidence. He's perhaps singing it with those who have gathered with him. He's doing it in the presence of the godly. There's a church service, if you will, out in the wilderness as he is running from Saul, where he takes refuge in the fact that he can gather with the assembly of the beloved, mix his praise with his redeemed brothers and sisters next to him, and worship together knowing that they too are in the covenant-keeping love of God their Father. Finally, this morning, I just want to recall your attention to Ephesians chapter 3, 14 through 19, that Gene already read for us this morning. The fullness of David's hope, the completion, the uh, satisfaction of all its terms and conditions has been realized in Jesus Christ our Lord. Thus, when Paul writes to the churches who were themselves in distress and facing many and very uh, different types, many types of enemies, it's with the same type of assurance and even more specificity that he prays his prayer in Ephesians 3.14 when Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit, in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Let's close in prayer. O Heavenly Father, we thank you that our trials have purpose and that we will live to see the day when every enemy of Jesus Christ has become his footstool. We will also live to see the day when we will join him, ruling and reigning next to him, Lord, for all eternity. These thoughts are based not on us, only upon the work of Jesus Christ. We realize them, Lord, and their breadth and scope in Scripture, and I pray that as we see them, your Spirit would give us faith, Lord, that would give us encouragement in this meantime. I pray that as we face the enemies of our soul or enemies without, we would do so with the confidence knowing that no weapon formed against us can prosper. And if God be for us, who can stand against us? Also, we pray in the depths of this struggle, Lord, that we would be diligent to testify to the saving power of Christ to save. I pray that you would annex a people from your enemies through us, that those who once were stirred in their rebellion to oppose the Lord of glory would join us 
in songs of thankfulness and praise, ascribing glory to your holy name and placing their hope in your steadfast love. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.